In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to turn to Luke's Gospel in the chapter 9, please. Luke's Gospel in the chapter 9. And we're going to read in the heart of the chapter from the verse 28. Luke's Gospel, the chapter 9, and reading there from the verse 28. And it came to pass, about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, they talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and speak of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, interesting question, what woke them? Was it the light of that glory there? Was it the sound of the conversation? When they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him. Again, that's an intriguing line, isn't it? As they departed from him. What exactly does that entail? How do we picture that in our mind's eye? It's an intriguing line. There are many intriguing things in this sacred history. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. How often that was true of Peter. Indeed, if the Holy Spirit had not told us that these were the words of Peter, would we not have understood them indeed to be from Peter? Now, here's an interesting thing, which I never did. I always meant to do a series of messages on the strange sayings of Peter. The strange sayings of Peter. You remember when the master spoke about the cross? Peter took him and said, This be far from thee. Or the great sheet that came down, you remember in the book of Acts. And the Lord said to Peter, Rise and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord. Now that's a contradiction in terms. If he's Lord, you do as you're bidden. Not so, Lord. Strange sayings of Peter. And there are other ex examples, of course, in the Gospels. Well, here we are clearly told, not knowing what he said. 
While he thus spake, there came a cloud. And how significant that cloud is. And overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Amen. May the Lord add his divine blessing to this reading from his inspired truth. Let us bow together in prayer as we're going to turn to the scriptures of truth. Let us seek the gracious help of the Holy Spirit. Our God and our Father, how we do rejoice that the book of God is open. And holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. How we would desire now the gracious ministry of him who is the divine author of this volume. Spirit of God, our teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. Warm the hearts of your saints. We remember those disciples on the road to Emmaus. They could bear witness that their hearts burned within them. Oh, that we would know that holy heartburn today. Draw out our hearts afresh after the Savior. Strengthen faith, deepen hope. Remember any among us who are yet unsaved and unconverted. We ask, O God, that I would speak in power to such. Awaken them. May there be that felt sense of need in their soul. May they have that constraint upon them that ere they would leave this house today, they would say, what must I do to be saved? O oh God, come and visit us with thy salvation. Remember even boys and girls today and young people brought up in the Christian home, familiar with these things from their earliest days, and yet personally have never come to the Savior. Bring them today. Bless your word. Now we beseech thee. Grant help to thy servant. Fresh oil from the sanctuary above. Spirit of the living God. Fall afresh on me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like you, please, to open your Bible there in the Gospel of Luke and the chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke and the chapter 9. The faces that we have read this morning record for us an event without parallel in the earthly history of the Son of God. It's an incident wholly unlike anything else in his ministry. Its singular importance is certainly underlined by the fact that it is 
very fully recorded by three of the evangelists. It is interesting to trace in the Gospels how even in the days of our Savior's humiliation, God the Father was pleased to honor his Son. We see that indeed from his very infancy. We are all familiar with the fact that our Savior was born in humble and poor circumstances. And yet he was honored by the coming of those wise men with their regal gifts. And we might just well say in the light of our reading, what honor is bestowed upon the Lord Jesus here. In the Gospels, we see the gradual manifesting of that glory of which John speaks at the beginning of his Gospel. When he said, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, surely I could say, when we come to this holy mount, we scale the utmost heights where we join those three disciples who in the words of Peter became eyewitnesses of his majesty. When we read the gospel record of this incident, we take note of the various words and metaphors employed by the evangelists. And we realize immediately that human language is inadequate to describe fully the glory that was so wondrously revealed in the Mount of Transfiguration. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and I'm not asking you to turn up the other references, but in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 and verse 29, we read, as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. Matthew's Gospel says, his face did shine as the sun. Again, you'll notice in verse 29 of Luke 9, and his raiment was white and glistering. Mark says, his raiment became shining, exceeding white, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Matthew says, though his raiment was white as the light. And here in Luke chapter 9, you can see in your English Bible those words white and blistering. It's only one Greek word. And this is the only place that it occurs. And it really means to flash out like the lightning. You see there they saw the countenance and the clothing of the Savior shining with celestial splendor as the inner divine glory of the Lord Jesus flowed out into visible 
dazzling brightness. It's a reminder to us, as C.H. Spurgeon said, he never ceased to be God. Nor was his Godhead for a single moment separated from his humanity. In the Gospels, emphasis is placed on the Savior's face and garments in his passion. They became the objects of the hostility of wicked men. You remember how they stripped him of his raiment. They arrayed him with a robe of scorn. There he hung naked on the cross, and there they sit at the foot of that cross, casting lots for his vesture. You'll remember how the face of our Lord Jesus bore the greatest share of shame at Calvary. They repeatedly buffeted. Then they spat on it. And then they crowned it with that cruel crown of thorns in awful mockery. And the Old Testament prophet Isaiah says his visage was marred more than any man. But here we see his face shine as the sun. We see his garments glistering white as the light. When in the words of Peter, he received from God the Father honor and glory. And there's a solemn thought with reference to that. One to underline in this awful day of blasphemy. How different the thoughts of men towards Christ and the thoughts of God towards Christ. And I tell you, it is the clear witness of this divine volume that God is exceedingly jealous for the honor and the glory of His Son. And woe to those who slight Him and blaspheme him. And yet we're living in a day when you are in your supermarket or in the streets, and alas, yes, in the schoolyard or the sports field. And how that precious name of our Savior is mingled with the filthy language of this world. And yet men never stop to think. And alas, in our day, we have to say, and woman never stop to think. For every word, and particularly for the words of blasphemy, they will give an account on the day of judgment. And you boys and girls and you young people, you hear that language in school, 
Just remember this. God is jealous for the honor of his son. Don't you be fooled to think it's a man to use language like that. Don't you be deceived in that regard. You honor his name. You deem it to be precious. It's interesting and instructive to notice how there was in this holy mount an honoring of our Lord Jesus Christ in every way. In his blessed person, his life, in all of his offices. Bible's a wonderful book. Of course, that holy mount just reminds us of the majesty of his kingly office. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. And also what an honoring in the first 35 of his prophetic office. I haven't the time because I'm not preaching on the, sur- on the Mount of Transfiguration this morning. But you remember that a voice came out of that cloud after what Peter had said. And what did that voice say? You'll notice there in verse 35, this is my beloved son, hear him. That's the prophetic office. Then in my text in the verse 31, you see the priestly office. Oh, what honor was done to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, men and women, and when we just consider this most awful and glorious scene, there is, as it were, just a lifting up of the corner of the field which hangs over the world to come. There is the casting of a blessed light upon some of the most precious and comforting truths of Holy Scripture. I just want to draw your attention to the words of the first 31. But we must begin, of course, there in verse 30 to get the context. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory. Oh, there's the condition of departed saints. What it is indeed now, and wonderfully, in this little passage, what it shall be. When our Lord Jesus appeared in glory, there we see Moses, the publisher of the law. There we see Elijah, the chief of the prophets, marvelous in their lives, mysterious in their death and in their end. But we see them standing and speaking with the Savior long centuries after they departed this life. That same Moses, that same Elijah, they're alive and they're alive in glory. Isn't that a solemn reminder that all is not over when the last breath is drawn? There is another world beyond the grave. There is an eternal state. There is an eternity. Now let me ask you this morning, what thought have you given to that this week? 
Oh, let there be honest judgment day. Honesty now, what thought? What thought about the interest of your soul this week? What thought about your eternal interests? But you have to say, no, no preacher, I haven't thought about those things this week. Well, that's just the evidence that you're an unconverted soul. That you are yet in your sins and without Christ. Just an evidence you need to be saved. What a solemn thing this morning if our brother giving the announcements had been expressing sympathy to your family. Because this week you dropped in. This past week you were in the car accident. Where would you be in God's eternity? But also a sublime reminder that for all of God's redeemed children, there is an unending life of glory beyond the grave. All the people of God are safe with Christ. And they're in a state of glory and blessedness, absent from the body, present with the Lord, with Christ, which is far better. And what's wonderful in this little passage is we have a real foretaste of the glory that is yet to be revealed. One of the favorite passages, and time will not permit me to read it to you, one of the most favorite passages, surely, of every Christian is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Indeed, I, I just say this. If that's not true of you, that's another evidence you're not a Christian. You can read the closing verses of that chapter 4 without rejoicing in Christ and the hope of the gospel. Think of what we see here, reunion and glory. There's Moses. He was buried by the very hand of God. Is he not thereby a suitable figure of those who are dead in Christ who shall rise first? And there's Elijah. And what a figure he is of those who remain and shall be caught up together with them. Those who shall not taste death. Blessed reunion. There's recognition and glory here. You'll notice in verse 33 that Peter is able to speak of Moses and Elias. He had never seen Moses and Elias. There were no photographs back then. He had never seen them, but he knew them. I tell you, men and women, we shall know one another in glory. The Father's house is not inhabited by strangers. You say, how can that be? Well, I can't explain that to you. Part of the wondrous mystery of the glory that is yet to be revealed, Spurgeon said, the mutual recognition of the saints hardly needs a better support than this passage. But not only, of course, is the recognition of the saints here, there's the revelation of the Savior and of his glory, especially in his face. What does revelation tell us? 
concerning the redeemed. They shall see his face. The glorified face of the Savior is always to be seen by us. Is there not the thought here of the reward of glory? Because the saints, you see, we shall be glorified together with him. We shall appear with him in glory. And if you read in Matthew 13, 43, in the parable, what are we told there concerning the saints of God and their faces? They'll shine as the sun. We, poor sinners, only deserving of God's judgment and wrath in that day, we shall be partakers of his glory. We shall be like him as we see him as he is. And our very faces going to shine as the sun. How amazing is the grace of God. Yet I want you to notice in this little passage the preeminence of Christ in all of this. Because just look at the verse 32. Closing words, and when they were awake, they saw their glory. It doesn't say that. No, it says they saw his glory. You know, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Just the thought of preeminence there. I have to keep moving along, or my good friend and fellow minister will say, Oh, He's as long-winded as ever. I don't want that to be happening. But come to verse 31, the conversation of departed saints. It's only Luke that tells us this, who appeared in glory and speak of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, how striking that is. How significant that is. And here's another, I think, a wonderful thought. It teaches us generally that there's not only that unending life of glory for God's saints beyond the grave, there's also a useful life of service beyond the grave. And there's mystery in that. But the book of Revelation says his servants serve him there. And here, of course, Moses and Elijah are evidently ministering to the Lord. And that's a subject that could occupy us for some time. But I just want to underline the gracious purpose in it for the spiritual good of those disciples. The Lord Jesus was entering upon the closing days of his life and ministry. The shadows were thickening around him. If you look at verse 51 of this chapter, he would come down from that holy mountain. He would set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And then you'll notice at the beginning of the passage in verse 28, mention is made, time is given. That's significant. Saying nothing about it, but those sayings are mentioned. What were those sayings? Well, you just have to look up the chapter and you'll find, of course, in verse 22 that the Lord Jesus now was distinctly Announcing to those disciples concerning his approaching sufferings and death. I've already mentioned this morning, and I return to just for a second or two. Peter vehemently protested against the notion of the cross. 
He had urged the Savior not to speak of his death. Let's be far from thee. Now think of this. Now Moses and Elijah come all the way from heaven to that holy mount to speak about nothing else. What a word of correction that was for Peter. Then you'll know about James and John who were very much occupied at one time about the throne and who should be the greatest. Now on that holy mount, they're learning what it is that heaven glories in. The cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And what a mercy it was. How appropriate it was that James was there. He was the first apostle to lay down his life, to be martyred for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. And oh, how rich that experience therefore for him, preparing him for that moment when he would be martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to that conversation. Notice those words. They speak of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. You know, that language is only fitting and proper when it is applied to Christ and to the death of the cross. Notice the word accomplish. It's the Greek word to fulfill. Indeed, it's translated over 50 times in your English Bible with that English word to fulfill. It just underlines the fatal necessity of that death. It was a death that he must accomplish if he was going to do the Father's will, if he was going to fulfill the stipulations of the eternal covenant of redemption, if he was going to secure the salvation of his people, this is a death he must die. You see, only by that death could the lost be found. Only by that death could the guilty be pardoned. Only by that death could the perishing souls of men be saved. Again, you'll notice the word there, decease. If you looked that up in a Strong's or Young's Concordance, you would recognize the word immediately. It's the word exodus. That underlines the vicarious nature of his death. It suggests to us, it reminds us of the lamb, the substitutionary lamb down in Egypt that was slain and the blood was sprinkled. Reminds us again that our blessed Savior, who had no sin of his own, died for our sins, stood in our guilty room instead, bore the wrath that was our due. This was a grand subject. This was a great theme. We might just say, is it not something singular and strange in the midst of all of that glory that they would speak of his decease? What a contrast. This mount was one of glory. Calvary was the place of grief. 
Here the Savior is in the company of those Old Testament worthies, Moses and Elijah. But he would be crucified between the two malefactors. Here his clothing could not hide his glory. At Calvary, his clothing did not hide his shame. Here the brightness outshone the sun. But at Calvary there came that deep and supernatural and mysterious darkness. Here the Father's voice speaks of his approval of his Son from heaven. But at the cross we hear the Son's cry of abandonment from earth. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, men and women, I tell you, those angels, they must have looked in amazement to see him who had been transfigured in glory in that holy mount, to see him now at Calvary, disfigured in his grief and in his sufferings. No wonder that Peter tells us that these are things that the angels desire to look into. And for all eternity, we will be looking into them. We will converse about that cross, about the sufferings of the dear Lamb of God, that all that he accomplished, we see so little now, we understand so little now. That brings me briefly to a final point. The confidence of departed saints. There they are, Moses and Elijah. In this holy conversation, this subject, you see, it holds all their interest. And why is that? Because it was all their hope. It was all their confidence. Moses and Elijah are both perfectly and fully aware that they are in glory. Because they had a saving interest in that death. Isn't it striking again, Moses, the lawgiver? Elijah, the prophet of fire. Can we not simply say to you, are they not proper representatives of the old testimony economy. How often in your Bible you read about the law and the prophets? Do you remember on the Emmaus Road that the Lord Jesus drew near to those despondent disciples? And then we read these words, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Some of you remember Pastor Willie Mullen. Willie Mullen was once asked if he could go back in time and be present to see or to hear something. What would he choose? And you know Immediately he chose this. He said, I, I would want to hear that sermon. 
When the Son of God, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I say again, they're both perfectly and fully aware they're in glory because they had a saving interest in that death. And that's true of all the Old Testament saints. They had an eye to the coming of God's Lamb. To that once for all and all sufficient sacrifice. To that precious atoning and redeeming blood that would be shed on Calvary. And when we think of what lies at the heart of heaven's throne, the Lamb as it had been slain, what lies at the heart of heaven's testimony and worship and song, thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. That a wonderful anthem of praise. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And I close by asking you, we opened with a hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Is that your testimony today? Is that where your faith and trust is centered in and upon? Oh, be sure that the atoning death of Christ and the redeeming blood of the Savior is the ground of all of your confidence and hope of heaven. I haven't done so much door-to-door work here because I was away for 26 years, but I certainly remember, and it's true, I believe, to this day, many a person, when they're challenged about what will happen to them when they die, well, I'd like to hope they go to heaven. I hope they go to heaven. Well, what's the ground of that hope? What's the foundation of that hope? That's the vital thing. You make sure it's the atoning death of Christ, the redeeming blood of the Savior, that you have that saving interest in the cross work of the Redeemer, the great saint Spurgeon, made the simple statement, Jesus died for me, are four words I have lived by, and they are the words I am going to die by. Oh, is that your testimony? today.